Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles, producer Trent here. This week's episode was recorded back uh, at the end of January when we were in Bristol for the Slapstick Festival. Uh, this wasn't part of the Slapstick Festival. Uh, just We happened to be in Bristol, so we caught up with author Nathan Filer to talk about his new book. Uh, you've probably heard Robin and Josie talk about The Shock of the Fall on the podcast a number of times before, his first novel, so we thought we should definitely catch up with him while we were down in Bristol. Remember, you can support us on patreon.com slash bookshambles and you'll get extended editions of all the episodes of Book Shambles as well as access to the video uh, of some of the upcoming episodes we're going to be recording remotely. We've got some very exciting guests coming up. So that is where you can get access to that. And obviously, thank you to the people who are already supporting us on Patreon and have been uh, a lot of you since day one for nearly five, six years now you've been supporting this podcast. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Make sure you're following us on Twitter as well at Cosmic Shambles. That's where we'll be announcing all the upcoming bits and pieces we'll be doing while we can't get out and see you in person on stages around the country and the world, in fact. So here we go. Here is today's episode. So I'm uh, in uh, in room six four one. It's the slapstick festival, and uh, so I thought, don't just do slapstick stuff, talking to the goodies and all that. You should do something else as well. Uh, my friend Nathan Filer, who's a wonderful author. With it, that's what we're, we're. I suppose starting thinking that both your books have dealt with with mental health. The first fiction, Shock of the Fall. Your new one, which was originally called The Heartland, but is now in paperback and is, is uh, this book would change your mind about mental health. Mm. Can I, first of all, the, a bit of the backstory, which is you, you're, now, you're now at Bath University, where, where you, you... Bath Spa. You, yeah. Bath Spa University, yeah. where you um, teach. But um, you started your career in, in mental health. What drew you to that? I did. Well, I started my career... I've always had sort of two careers running alongside each other. So I was a performance poet as well. Uh, so, I sort of, so that's how my kind of writing career started. Um, but going into mental health, um, I don't have a great origin story for that. It wasn't, I you know, as a little boy, I didn't think, oh, I want to be a mental health nurse. I was actually, I, I kind of fell into it a little bit. I was, um, I, I dropped out of, uh, I dropped out of university the first time I went uh, and was at a bit of a loose end uh, and needed a job. And my mum was a, a healthcare assistant, you know, sort of auxiliary nurse in um uh, in, not in mental health, but in a general hospital, and she suggested you know that that might suit me. Um, and actually, just a, a, a brief aside, I give lots of I go around now and give these sort of, you know big fancy lectures, and I often talk to roomfuls of doctors, you know medics and and people, and I, I've I've sort of made the, I've had the thought and made the point that if uh, if my mother was a doctor, she might have suggested a career in medicine would suit me, but she was a healthcare assistant, so she suggested healthcare assistant might suit me. So there's a, a broader kind of social uh, uh, discussion there. But anyway, I, I, I did go into that and um, uh, worked as a healthcare assistant, would spend a lot of time uh, emptying catheters, uh, wiping uh, bottoms, uh, and because this was 
God, 20 years ago more, uh, and because I didn't have the responsibilities of being a uh, of being a qualified nurse at that time, I also got to spend a lot of time sitting with people who were afraid, uh, holding their hands, listening to their stories. And, and it was that that for me was sort of a more satisfying part of the job than the wiping the bottoms and the emptying the catheters. But I will say, Robin, there is something uniquely satisfying about emptying a catheter bag if you've never, if you've never done it. But, uh, but it was the, those conversations that gave me more purpose. And that sort of led me into, into mental health then. You know, a colleague of mine said, oh, there's these, you know, these other types of wards and, you know, and sort of moved into psychiatry. And I tell you, the first time that I worked in a psychiatric unit it was this uh, in in Bristol uh, in a hospital called Blackberry Hill Hospital. Lots of it's closed down now, and it was a sort of ugly nineteen fifties sort of block of a, a, a drafty block of a building um, in beautiful grounds, actually in like the, the sort of green and leafy grounds of what was once a, a, a sort of Victorian uh, lunatic asylum. You know, say what you will about the old asylums, they often had very nice grounds. Um, well, that's what I've not. I, I was talking with someone yesterday who's worked to mental health, and you never. I never think of what the word asylum actually means. That the initial, the the I, was it was it late eighteenth century that the idea was set up by with it. Was it in any way involved in Quakers, which was the idea that it was to offer people asylum in the same way, sure. you know, and then the you know the model starts to fall apart and, it's got the, and, now, it's, and now it's got a completely different connotation yeah. hasn't it so then yeah so i mean interestingly you know all of the language of mental health which is a big part of of, of this book and the controversy around the language how that how that term is going to take on a completely different a completely different meaning um but anyway yeah i mean to cut a, to cut a long ramble short i went into one of those wards and um i really just didn't know that places like that existed outside of one for over the cuckoo's nest outside of you know what I'd seen in my parents read sort of tabloid newspapers when I was growing up and um and and outside of that so it's a real kind of wake up call to to go oh this is a reality this is a reality for lots of people um well, that's, you mentioned One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, and you made a very interesting uh, radio for... Was it placed in the archive hour? I can't remember which slot it was actually it was, placed uh, in. Yeah, it was, it was archive on four. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was uh, where you talked... The, the, the opening of that was, was a discussion about what, how... The, especially the film of One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, because uh, I suppose that's what most people will yeah. know, yeah. Uh, how unhelpful that has been in terms of many people's idea not merely about you know institutions but also about things such as well particularly you know, ECT, electro- yeah, ECT, yeah, which, yeah, which yeah, is yeah, and that, that is very so when did you, is there a point from from the 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 young person who walked in to can you in any way chart the changes of your expectations of what you would see when you went into rooms filled with people with different mental health issues and what you learnt in that time, that, that, uh, when you left there, how much of a change in, in terms of your understanding of human beings with mental health issues? Well, I mean, that's a big question. It is a huge question. <laughs> and I know also it's probably yeah. very hard, because I imagine it was, it wasn't, there's not some Damascene moment. No. It's where a... you, but I just wondered where, where, how much you remember who you were when, when you went in and, and your attitudes and, and, and they might not have changed very much at all. I, 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 think, I think probably things uh, l- l- like kind of uh, seeing kinds of suffering uh, that would have been very shocking and disturbing for me at the beginning, I suppose to an extent became a bit more normalised, you know, so, 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 so certainly that was 
that was a shift. Of course, the danger with that shift is uh, go too far that way, and that can kind of lead to apathy and burnout and and, and these things as well. So, um, but 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 certainly, you know, that that is something that something that happens. But but for me, I I think the the most significant changes uh, in the way that I think about and conceptualise. Uh, these con this concept we call mental illness it's probably happened since I left psychiatry because when 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 you're in it when I was working as a nurse you know you look through a particular lens you are part of a, a biomedical system you know biomedical psychosocial but you know it's got a big kind of you know we medicalize distress and we treat it through medicine you know sort of broadly thinking of suffering as a kind of chemical imbalance to be treated by other chemicals you know as a big part of what we do um and it was really um since stepping away from that and in researching this book this book will change your mind about mental health or the heart and whatever um that i began to really challenge that and reflect on uh, what I was involved in on on, on the wards, um, and to see some of that a bit differently. Yeah. What about before we'll, we'll get into the specifics of the book in a moment? But just the one, which is about that idea of that once someone has been placed in any form of institution, once someone has been labelled, whether and that would and the labelling may be a broad number of different things, but that othering of people at the moment that they actually have a diagnosis, the moment that they have a prescription or that they're placed in a hospital, in the same way as the moment someone may well be considered homeless or the moment someone may well have the label refugee, that means that the number of dimensions that the rest of the people may view them with are turned into two-dimensional. People become... Yeah, well, so, I mean, some of the biggest and, like, like, like most acrimonious debates, really, when we are around psychiatry and mental health are around uh, diagnosis, so so labelling. And um, there's, like, there's never a, a, a sort of one-size-fits-all answer to these things because for some people, uh, receiving... Uh, a, a, a diagnosis, receiving a, 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 a label to help them uh, understand and to explain the difficult experiences that they are having can be like really helpful. Yeah, like receiving, uh, being told that, you, you know, this very disruptive, uh, distressing uh, uh, experience you've been having is bipolar disorder uh, might make a person feel much less alone uh they know that it's not just them it might open uh doorways to pathways of care and so forth so that can be uh so certainly that can be a very positive thing now also uh diagnoses can be uh as we know sort of, you know terribly uh stigmatizing uh and they can as you just described make people feel uh other um and some of the kind of treatment and prejudice they then experience might be worse than the than the symptoms that led to them having that diagnosis in the first place now you could argue couldn't you that um even if uh, a diagnosis is unpleasant to receive uh it would still be the right thing to give somebody say for example if somebody has cancer yeah so like nobody wants to receive a diagnosis of cancer that's a horrible diagnosis to receive but that wouldn't be a good reason for a doctor not to tell someone they have cancer if they do where mental health is different and this is crucial psychiatry is different in how it diagnoses people to every other field of medicine and that is because for the vast majority 
of what we call the mental illnesses, biomarkers have not been found. There isn't an objective brain scan or blood test or anything of the sort that we can categorically say, so here we are, we can see here, you can point to this little bit on, on, uh, on, on this scan and there's your bipolar. That doesn't exist. So psychiatry is a bit different. Psychiatry uh, diagnoses certainly based on symptoms, but we have no, uh, there's no proof of those underlying signs. Again, for the vast majority of the, of the, the there are exceptions, um, like, like Huntington's and sort of forms of dementia and so forth. Uh, but for most that there isn't. Now, so, th- so this is where we then run into the problem because if, as you say, for some people receiving a diagnosis might be a very negative experience. And then if actually the science behind that diagnosis is a bit shaky, well, then you've got a question to ask as to whether we should be giving people these diagnoses. Well, that's what I want. The, the, the book is the it's looking at the idea of schizophrenia rather than being this what many people might think is a, is a, is a singular condition which may well display in certain different ways, that in fact it's been a very broad umbrella covering perhaps many different <laughs> mental situations for people. And I, I suppose the starting point for me is thinking that, I forget his name now, the guy, pioneer of the kind of abnormal psychology movement, Rosen... Uh, oh, Rosenhan. Rosenhan, yeah. yeah. Now, he famously did that experiment where uh, he wanted to see that once you were, once you'd become institutionalised, he sent a, a group of his students, I think it was his students, to basically say, I think they, they either heard the sound of a bell or they heard that they'd had... It, certain... was, it was three words, they heard three words, uh, empty, dull and thud. That's right. And then once they were in, then even if they never at any other point within the institution, so that they were absolutely fine from that point onwards, getting out is quite hard once you've been given the diagnosis. And uh, you can pick me up on any of these things. No, you're exactly and, and, right. And yeah, then, you're, yeah, this is exactly it. Yeah. Then a lot of the psychiatric institutions at the time went, oh, no, this is absolute uh, rubbish. Uh, we easily can work out whether people have something which may well be, you know, de- debilitating uh, mental health treatment or not. And uh, if, you say, if you do this experiment again, we'll be able to pick out all of them. And he went, all right, I'm going to send a load more people in. And then they went, and they found all these people. went, ah, ha, 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 ha. And he went, I didn't send anyone in. So he basically, you know, he called their bluff and showed that actually it was a far more subjective situation. How far have we moved on since that's 50 years ago plus, isn't it? So, yeah, so everything, so a lot of what has happened since has been a response to the Rosenhan experiment and a couple of others. So that experiment, as you outlined, you know, you cannot... Uh, overestimate the impact that that had. It embarrassed psychiatry and particularly uh, uh, American psychiatry, but with reverberations felt around the the, the world. Yeah. Um, so there was there was that experiment. Uh, there were a couple of others as well uh, around the same time, also in the seventies, uh, where uh, it was demonstrated that two psychiatrists seeing the uh, same patient, sometimes only minutes apart, would arrive at a different diagnosis. Uh, it was demonstrated in other experiments that uh, American psychiatrists were particularly trigger happy with the diagnosis of schizophrenia. So there were all of these things going on, and it was very embarrassing for uh, for uh, psychiatry. And it was in direct response to that uh, that uh, psychiatry began, like, to, to try and improve reliability. So I mean, it's a good like aim, like they want to improve, like, so that's a problem. What you call like, re- you know, the scientific concept of reliability um uh they wanted to improve that and so they moved more and more and more towards these more tightly uh defined and categorized diagnoses so at, at the time of those experiments 
that were, you know, a, 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 a sort of, I think it was like 120 odd sort of official psychiatric diagnoses that, you know, you or I could suffer from. Um, now that's up to about 540 odd, yeah? So there's more and more and more uh, uh, official uh, official diagnoses. And this is part, it's, it's, it's partly happened, I think, because like human behaviours don't especially like to be placed in in boxes, yeah? So our experiences kind of have like rather blurred edges. So somebody might have many of the typical uh, thoughts associated with schizophrenia. They might have some of the behaviours associated with bipolar. And so psychiatrists, traditional psychiatrists' response to that was to create a third box and call it schizoaffective disorder. Or if a person has a sort of quality of suffering that doesn't meet an existing diagnosis in intensity, well, they can have a medical sounding diagnosis too. So if you're not quite depressed, uh, that's uh, uh, dysthymia, if you're not quite bipolar, that's cyclothymia. So the critics of this method, uh, of which there are many, often often go under the, 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 the sort of heading, you know, a disorder for everyone. But it's, 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 it's quite political as well, um, because I, there's a case to be made and has been made uh, by, uh, you know, various scholars in different fields now, uh, that this massive proliferation in the official psychiatric diagnoses disorders like could serve the interests of people in positions of power yeah so maybe and this is the argument is made i'd be interested to know your 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 take on it but we could say um that it's more convenient that uh, a young person who is uh falling apart while trying to pay uh, you, you know, two thirds of their salary from a zero hours contract uh, for ever increasing rent prices for some mouldy room in a shared house, better uh, or more convenient for some people that that person is suffering from a, suffering from a panic disorder, yeah, like an official mental illness that we can put inside their brain rather than to countenance the possibility that the real problem is elsewhere. See, that's what I found very interesting in the book, which is the in another a different example, but. Joan Smith's recent book about the fact that uh, an enormous number of people who commit uh, terrorist attacks, etc., uh, in their life already, they have been abusers, they have been physically violent, uh, long before they then found religion. Yeah, we like to go, oh, this person's been radicalised by religion, that's made them violent. And I, as far as I know as well, talking to, to someone the other day uh, as well about this issue, which is the same also very often people who will commit various different uh, criminal activities. When you look, you will also see that they may well be abusers. And the police for a long period of time have always detached the two and they've kind of gone oh with that that's domestic thing and you know there's certainly been a history of of just well we can't really get involved and that actually what happens there is connected to other actions the idea that they're separate and i think that that that's what i found fascinating about it, is the that here's schizophrenia and it seems to be entirely some of the case studies to where here i say case study you know, some of the people you interview some of the people who you know terrible suffering and loss their actual what they're dealing with as human beings in terms of everyday life is it is not taken into account at all. It seems. No, and I think that's uh, that can be one of the, the one of the problems. Like as soon as you use one of these 
diagnostic labels. And I should say, like, I'm not like completely against them. There are people mm. I interview, people who are, you know, I'm I'm just interested in exploring all of the all of the views out there. Um, but I think certainly you could make a case that you, you know these labels create a kind of pseudo explanation. So. Um, you know, you can say it, it stops you investigating any further. So you might say, oh, no, my child's behaviour is explained by their diagnosis of ADHD. And then you've just sort of got ADHD and that explains it. And then it stops you, like, maybe exploring what else might be going on in their lives that's resulting uh, potentially uh, in, in you know, in, in, in that behaviour. I mean, ADHD, actually, you know, so I just, just go off on one. I think that's a that's a, a, a really interesting one as well, because that's one of these diagnoses that just, like, exploded in the in the mid-90s. You know, it, it reached a point, I think, where I, uh, sort of 13% of American teenagers were diagnosed with, were diagnosed with this. And, and, and this is where we've got to be careful about when we might start to pathologise what are just like normal human experiences that we're not all the same. There is a diversity to, to, to how we think and to and, and to how we feel. Um and that's that's part of being that's part of being human. And ADHD can become a very, very popular diagnosis. I think aided uh, in part by lobbying of drug companies mm. who were prescribing obscenely profitable uh, drugs and like a few other uh, sort of forces at play as well. But we now know that the the youngest child in a classroom is more than twice as likely to be diagnosed with ADHD than the oldest child in the classroom. Well, does that mean that the youngest child in the classroom is more than twice as likely to have some kind of brain abnormality? Of course it doesn't. Does it mean that the youngest child in the classroom is more likely to be four years of age rather than five years of age? Well, yes, it does. So so there we've, we've, we've effectively turned immaturity into a disease, and actually, uh, the um, I, I, I'm trying to think of his name now, but the the, the guy who was at the forefront really of the uh, of the explosion in the ADHD diagnosis by adding it to one of these diagnostic and statistical manuals uh, that they have in the in 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 the US, uh, he's now uh, at the forefront of the campaign against it. Wow. Sorry to interrupt your podcast, but I just quickly wanted to let you know about the thing, which is that Book Shambles and the Cosmic Shambles Network exist thanks to generous pledges of our listeners on Patreon. If you want to support the podcast and what we do, tiers start at just $1 a month, and you'll get all sorts of goodies thrown in. So go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. So if we want to think about uh, how delusions might be an extension of something we're doing all the time... uh, to survive and navigate in the social world uh, is no mean feat, yeah? Like, we've got to be, uh, as uh, human beings, alert at all times to potential dangers. Uh, and, the, and the key word there is potential, yeah? There's no point being alert to a danger after it's already happened, yeah? So we are constantly looking around to take preventative uh, action and I cite um, uh, a couple of theorists who r- write a lot about this. They're called Joel and uh, Ethan Gold, and I, I write about them in my book. But they give an example in 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 their book, a brilliant book called um, uh, Suspicious Minds. And they say, you know, imagine that you are uh, walking down an alleyway uh, in an unfamiliar town uh, late at night, 
and you hear a, a, a noise behind you. Well, that noise might just be the, the rustling of some, of some leaves, but it might also be uh, the careful footsteps of an assailant who uh, wants to, 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 to cause you harm. So a successful cognition system for dealing with that needs to uh, be very rapid, immediate, it needs to alert you to the sound, it needs to suppress all competing urges yeah, until that danger has been assessed uh, or has uh, or has uh, has passed. Yeah. So fear, fear is the name we give to one such cognition system. Yeah. Fear is a, a very rapid, highly unpleasant sensation that stops us thinking about anything else, uh, and is designed to keep us safe. But in our uniquely complex uh, human societies, the threats we need to be on the lookout for are not only those that might uh, endanger our lives, there's all sorts of social threats as well. So I'm looking at you now, I'm sort of telling you this, I'm looking at you and I'm looking out for the smallest, sort of most uh, ambiguous uh, facial changes or whatever to think, God, is uh, is Robin getting bored of this? Is he not interested in this? Is he just, did he just look at his watch then? Is he, is he checking his phone? And these things matter. They matter at an evolutionary level because, you know, this podcast, the success of this podcast, uh, determines the success of my book and the success of my whole career uh, from this <laughs> from this moment forth. So it determines whether I'm able to feed my children. Yes, I give like a silly example, but you see what I mean. We're looking out for things all the time to protect but we, our So we elevate threats as the, well. We, 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 it, it is possible to be in. I mean, I've certainly had that. I continued to analyse social situations when I was five years old, thinking, did I do that? That was a terrible mistake. I wonder if that person still... So what you're describing there, the reflection, is the second part of this process. So what, so what I've described so far is... Are you familiar with this uh, idea of, like, dual process reasoning? You, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, so, so uh, like, or sometimes it's called system one, system two thinking. So what I've described is system one. So you, system one. And like, loads of other animals have kind of uh, system one because it's that part from like a very deep ancient part of our brain it's the very rapid like it's the alarm bell mm. something's not right yeah it's like very quick it requires very little energy from the brain it's the i heard a noise something's not right uh i feel suspicious of my wife because of that something's not right and it's the it's the, it's the alarm bell yeah uh but then for most of us mercifully system two kicks in and system two is like slower, more reflective. It was you like thinking back over those things, appraising them and appraising the the, the, the threat for veracity. So, uh, you know, system two says to system one, uh, don't worry, uh, that's not actually a spider. Uh, that's just the harmless top of a tomato. Uh, or for the lycoparascophobics among us, that's not a terrifying top of a tomato, uh, that's just a harmless spider, yeah? So system two takes, uh, cuts in and takes care of that. And the theory goes that for people who are experiencing, you know, devastating persecutory uh, delusions, uh, there is, like, system one is firing, uh, but system two isn't doing what it should in order to switch that off. So it's a, an unregulated form of threat detection but the threat detection nothing underpinning it well that's really useful we need to have that like we need to be doing that in order to keep us safe so then we get this is where i think it gets fascinating and again this is the theory of uh, joel and ian gold but then we get to 
uh, grandiose delusions and think, so, okay, so it makes sense, persecutory delusions, because they, they would be the most common type of delusion because they're the closest to the brain operating as it's meant to, yeah? Like, mm. as it's meant to be doing anyway. But why grandiose? Why would you think you're Jesus? Why would you think that you're um, invincible? Well, when we feel threatened, we have two options, don't we? We can either hide away or... If that's not going to work, we can make ourselves look bigger. Yeah. And we see this all across the animal kingdom. I mean, like animals literally making themselves bigger, puffing the chest out, making their, you know, in order to send, uh, send away this threat. But again, in our uniquely complicated social human societies, it is not always going to be enough to, like, to, 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 flex your, to flex your literal physical muscles. Uh, so we do something else. We talk ourselves up a bit we make sure our virtues are on display we all do it don't we when we're in those complicated social situations where we feel a little bit threatened we might lie about how we really think and feel in order to protect our position within the tribe and with a bit of effort we might convince ourselves that those lies are true but enough about every facebook post ever written yeah, so we can see persecution broken form of threat detection grandiosity, a broken form of threat response. Uh, and, and so then these, sure, of course, they're like very unusual behaviours in people. And some of the people that I spoke to uh, in my book with, you know, very uh, alarming and distressing, uh, persecutory or unusual, uh, grandiose uh, uh, beliefs. But when we start to frame it in that way, we can see, well, this isn't so different mm. to what I'm doing. It's more of what I'm doing. Yeah. So that, why did you decide, you know, first of all, it's a non-fiction book. What was the spur for you to think, right, this is what, because I know you've spent a long time working on this, almost since I've, I've, I first met you at a festival, you were starting on your next book and it was going to be looking at schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And so it's been a very long period of, 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 of research and writing. Why, what, was there a single story? Was it a, uh, a mass of stories that made you go, I think this is something that needs to be in the public sphere. This is something that people need to be aware of. So I, after writing Shock of the Fool, engaged in lots of conversations with people and I started... Um, so, like, for people who aren't, like don't don't know that, but that's about a, a, a young man who he's never actually diagnosed in the mm. in the book, but but he like if he was, he would be diagnosed with schizophrenia. And he's sort of navigating uh, the mental health system uh, whilst grieving the loss of his brother. Anyway, so that's that novel, and um, and after it came out, lots of people got in touch with me um, through my website to share. Uh, to share their stories, um, sometimes because their stories like felt similar to them to the story I'd written. Sometimes people wanted to tell me how theirs was different, uh, and I and I wrote back to people and started dialogues with people in conversations and I was meeting more people through going around and talking about the shock of the fall at book events and and so forth and just find myself engaged in in lots and lots of conversations and some of those uh, conversations sit right at the heart of um, of of this book so though it has all the, the 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 theory side of it and you know the ideas around delusions as we've just been talking about m- most of the book uh, tells uh, uh, five stories of people living in 
uh, in the shadow of, of, of that diagnosis. Um, so yeah, that was sort of the starting point, really. And I started just by writing those stories, and then the the questions and the and the yeah the sort of more kind of academic thoughts uh, around it came out of those. How difficult? I mean, the, these to go into this part of, of of someone's life, and to both find the information that in some ways that you, that you you're hoping to get because you need to write, but but at the same time of steering through this, to, it must be a very it must be very hard sometimes to sit down with people who are having to relive these situations. Uh, yeah, like really, I, I felt. Do you know, Robin? I just felt such a responsibility. One of the one of the reasons that I when I talk about this book, I talk more about the ideas than the than the stories. Um, is because I felt a real responsibility with those stories for them not to be uh, case studies. They're not like, you know, they, they are a big, big part of the book. So, you know, in medical textbooks or psychiatric textbooks, you would often, you know, have all the theory and discussion and then a, a, a little box with uh, with a sort of concentrated life in order to illustrate those, illustrate those points. And I'm really, you know, absolutely from the start, I didn't want... To do that, I wanted to tell the stories, which is why I end up not talking about them and things like this. Because again, I don't want to yeah. reduce them, and uh, I, I feel like they deserve the the, the, the space to be um, to be sort of explored um, uh, in their entirety. But to answer uh, your to answer your question, yeah, it was really really difficult to to sit and to hear those and the responsibility of. Um, trying to capture them in a way that the people who'd had the like the generosity and the bravery actually to sit down and talk to a stranger who they don't know who's going to write a book about it uh, to share really intimate details of their life and for me to capture that in a way uh, that, that, that those people uh, felt heard in a way that felt dignified it felt like it felt like such a responsibility and one thing that became really apparent to me and that is that is how different that was to my role as a nurse because of course I've spoken to lots of distressed people as a nurse I've had lots of conversations with people about very difficult things that was part of my job but as a nurse my role felt very clearly defined I was part of a team providing treatment and like hopefully support and care and reassurance but I was like part of a treatment team when hearing these stories I wasn't, and there was I, there was an in, a, an incident when I was speaking to, to to one of the people who was who was telling me her story and um, telling me the story of a very very difficult childhood that that, that she had a childhood her mum was very poorly and it threw her and her siblings into into desperate poverty and for many many years and and really you know they had to drag them drag themselves up it was it was it was hard to listen to and it was hard for her to tell and. As she was telling me this story, she became uh, quite tearful at times and she was also quite hard on herself. And in the interview, you know, because I listened to it, you know, listen, li- listening to it back uh, to transcribe it and all of that, I um, I tried to interject and so I sort of slipped a little bit into nursing role and wanted to reassure her, wanted to make her feel better, wanted to let her know how brave I thought she was and all of those things that I was, that I was thinking. But when I did that, the psychological shutters immediately came down. Mm. And I realised that wasn't what she'd signed up to. 
she didn't ask me to come into her life to make her feel better. She didn't ask me to come in as a mental health professional. She asked me to come in to, so she could tell this story and she wanted me to shut up and listen. So it's a, di- you know, it's a different, it was a different role. But of course, you know, you could argue we should possibly be doing more of that as mental health professionals too. But, uh... It's one of the hard things, isn't it? Where uh, um, Helen Crimmins, when we uh, did a, a, a benefit uh, a year and a half ago, two years ago, um, to help fund a cancer treatment in America, because she lives in America and therefore costs a fortune just to live. Yeah. If you're real. And um, she sent me a, a, something to read out of the benefit. And it was where she said, sometimes when you ask me how I am, you don't have to say anything after that. Mm. And I think that's one of the hardest things for all of us, probably people listening to this podcast when I've interjected with you or whatever, you know, which is we're also socially, we, we think we must always be reacting. We must, oh, yeah, well, if someone talks about an illness, you go, oh, well, I knew someone who had that. Actually, mm. no, no, it's all right, actually. Or whatever it might be. Or if someone has a sad story, very often people feel the urge to go, oh, do you know what? I had something pretty sad. You know, that... that and. Which we do as a social skill, don't we? Yeah. We do it for all the right reasons. Yeah, very often we, it's yeah. not for, for yeah. ego. No, no. Um, but yeah, sometimes sometimes we need to not do that. Sometimes we just need to listen and write a book about it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and yeah, it's Faber fa- fa- and Faber, nine ninety nine. The um, this is uh, what has been. It's just come out in, part, in paperback. It's a hard, hardback. Uh, back, back was it April last year? Something like uh, that? June last year. June last year. And, and it yeah. was. Um, what's been the reaction in terms of from people? When I say in mental health, I mean both those who work in mental health and those who may well be, you know, treated within the system. Mm. Have you have you had much reaction? I have, and I've been. I, I was really nervous, more than nervous, scared at the point of this book coming out, and I think like all authors will, and I mean, I don't know what your experience is when your last book came out, did you have the fears? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we have the fears, don't yeah. we? It's like, is it, it's exposing, and you're like, yeah, suddenly putting yourself out there and feel very vulnerable. So I had like all of those that I think would come with putting out any book. Um, and then I had, uh, for me, additional fears this time around, because I knew that I was digging into these, you know, very uh, contested, uh, controversial debates where people have strong opinions, you know, very strong opinions, um, and it can become uh, really acrimonious. I think, which I think is terrible, you know, I think often those acrimonious disputes are between professional guilds, and uh, they, they need to, like, stop doing that and think about, like, why we're all doing this and turn our attention back to the people who we're trying to help. But anywho... Uh, I was aware that I was putting a book out into uh, into that terrain, uh, but I've been delighted with how it's how, how it's been received. I think people have received it as it was intended, which was to uh, not be a polemic, uh, not force my views or any particular ideology uh, a, a, upon the reader, but to go look here's some stories uh, of people's lives and here's what it might tell us uh, about. Uh, about this concept of uh, mental illness, but also about being human and about ourselves, and I think um, uh, I, I think it's been received in that way. Brilliant. So this book will change your mind about mental health. Uh, you can that's available now. I highly recommend reading Shock of the Fall. And if if it's still on there, I don't know if it's still. Uh, very often BBC Sounds keeps these things now, but your archive on four about uh, mental health. And, it is up there. It's called the, the mind in the the mind in the media. It's called. Well, it's uh, that's fantastic. Thank you very much. You may now leave room 641. <laughs>
Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed that. Back next week with a new episode. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is the place to go to support us. Thank you if you already do so. Welcome if you've just joined us. Have a great week. Be smart, stay safe. Take care. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.